Okay. Uh, so remember, these recordings are available online. You can find them on our church website. And I think uh, they're also, if you are subscribed to the uh, King's Crossing podcast, that is also another easy way to access our, uh, our lessons and classes and stuff like that. So, guys, let me start off with this question. If you had to choose one word to describe Christian attitude and behavior, if you had to choose one word to describe Christian attitude and behavior, what word would you choose? Faithful. Faithful? That's a good word. Love? Another good word? Anybody else? One word. Christ-like. I actually have Christ-like on here. It's hyphenated in there for, I think according to Microsoft word count, it counts as one word because it's hyphenated. Christ-like. Yeah. What about holy? Yeah, that's another good one. Anybody else? One word. Hopeful. Hmm. Yeah, especially with all the, all the significance that the, the Christian notion of hope has in it. Yeah, yeah. Directed. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, Holy Spirit guiding us. Yeah. I think love is probably, what was that? I was going to say flawed. Flawed, oh, okay, yeah. Taking a, um, an, an, another angle on it, but yeah. I think love is probably the most common one, especially, right, because Jesus emphasizes the importance of love when he defines the two greatest, which means the most important, commandments. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. You all know these. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Jesus is... uh, constantly getting questions and people are trying to test him either to catch him or either to see what he's all about so mark chapter 12 verse 28 one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating noticing that jesus had given them a good answer he asked him of all the commandments which is the most important your translation might say which is the greatest or which commandment is first of all that the idea there is you know, how do, how do you understand torah basically Jesus said, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay. Now, which two Old Testament passages does Jesus quote here? He quotes two different ones. Which two Old Testament passages does Jesus quote here? Anybody? Okay, Manette's uh, told us one's in Deuteronomy. Yeah? Do you got chapter and verse? Okay. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Also known as the Shema. Have you ever heard the word Shema before? Okay, yeah, because it begins, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Pay attention. Listen up, O Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's the first one Jesus quotes. 
And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't even just start with, you shall love the Lord your God. He starts with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another way to understand the Hebrew phrase there, the Lord is one, could mean something like the Lord alone. Pay attention only to him which was obviously an issue for a group of people that were constantly tempted with paganism and polytheism. So, but then, what Old Testament book does the second commandment come out of? I'll guarantee you it's probably not your favorite. <laughs> hey, there we go. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I will go ahead and warn you now, there are things in Leviticus that you will be embarrassed to read publicly. <laughs> but Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, actually has some really good stuff. I'll read that for us. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And it's interesting that the reason for why you shall love your neighbor as yourself? God says, well, it's because I am the Lord. <laughs> okay. Based on who God is, you ought to treat other people this way. If you're going to be my community, here's what that looks like. But I'm, I hope this passage doesn't make you squirm too much. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your own people. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> anyway, love kind of makes some sense. And it's well, like we know this. We know that Jesus loved God, love others. That's kind of how we put it in a bumper sticker. But I want us to kind of keep that in mind because it, it makes sense for where we're going today. If we keep that idea of love in mind and also work backwards through the book of First. Corinthians a little bit to get where we're going. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. Now we're going to read these and we're going to read the end of chapter 12. And a few verses into chapter 13, and once you get into this, you might recognize some of these things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, Paul says, Are all apostles? Are all of you prophets? Are all of you teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The implied answer is no. 31, verse 31, but strive for the greater gifts, meaning spiritual gifts. All right, so he's talking about spiritual gifts here. And the end of verse 31, he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So according to this 
these last verses in chapter 12 and these first verses in chapter 13, what is the more excellent way? To be loving. To be loving. Yeah, it's love. And you saw what he said at the end of uh, chapter 12 there. The spiritual gifts are great. They're great. He says, pursue them, seek them. But if they aren't used in love for each other, they're worthless. They're worthless. And so the proper way to employ these gifts is to use them for each other. And turn with me to the beginning of chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Paul again, talking about spiritual gifts. Listen for the recurring word or idea in these uh, verses. Listen for the recurring word or idea in these passages. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay. What is the recurring word or idea in these passages? Spirit shows up. He is there giving all of these gifts. Any other recurring word or idea, especially in verses 4, 5, and 6? Variety shows up. What else? Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. It's the same. There's varieties. There's different expressions of the Holy Spirit, but it is the same. Lord, same God, same Spirit. Kind of a little subtle Trinitarian poke right there. All right. Paul's emphasis on the unity of the gift giver, same Spirit, same Lord, same God, Paul's emphasis on the unity of the gift giver implies that the gift users need to be unified as well. God has given you this one gift and he's given you this other gift. The same God has given you two different gifts. Should you use them to butt heads against each other? No. How should you use them? What does he say here in verse 7? Look at verse 7. What is the purpose of the gifts? For the common good. And this is not like some weird sort of thing where like, for the greater good. The little people must be sacrificed. It's not like that. <laughs> it's not like that. It's for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now Paul kind of follows that line of thinking. All right, you've got all these different spiritual gifts, all these different expressions of the same Spirit given to each and every person for the common good. Now let's take a look. Still in chapter 12, let's roll down to verse 11. Paul is going to use a metaphor here. And if you don't remember what the word metaphor is, I trust you can all look it up really quickly. <laughs> Paul's going to use the, a metaphor here to describe the, the Christians that he's talking to. 
What metaphor does he use, starting in verse 11? All these, meaning the gifts, are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses for, just as the body <clears throat> is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, <clears throat> though many, are one body, <clears throat> so it is with Christ. Okay, you're picking it up on it now. For in the one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member or part, but of many. If the foot would say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the parts of the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member or a single part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. Skip down to verse 27. And I think verse 27 spells it out clearly, if you haven't picked up on it already. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are parts of it. All right, easy question, not a trick question. What metaphor does Paul use to describe Christians in these verses? Body. body. Nailed it. There we go. <laughs> you need to bring that, uh, bring that A game to grilling this afternoon <laughs> for the teens. Body. Okay, based on what we've read so far, what conclusions can we draw about how Christians are supposed to use the various spiritual gifts that God has given to them? It's part of a whole. It's part of a whole. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, go ahead. Interesting that, um, it, when, when you think of a body, you don't think of separate parts. Hand doesn't disengage. Right. right. The ear doesn't disengage. So, although the body is one unit, it has separate members. But then, if you think of the body of Christ, you have to think of it, yeah, as separate parts, but as totally connected. Mm -hmm. So we're not individuals. Right. We are part of a unit. That's right. Part of a unified whole. That is, to I mean, to use a. a, a an old, um, an old saying that is greater than the sum of just its parts. That's right. That whole system, that whole body system is more than just you know, the nerves and the cardiovascular system and the gastrointestinal system. Yeah, it's more than all that. We are all given gifts to build up the body let me ask this question in another way. Again, not a trick question. As Christians, how are we supposed to treat the body of believers around us? Not a trick question. Just I mean, as brothers and sisters, right? But how'd that go when you were a kid? Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got uh, hit in the head with a basketball because I accidentally said a bad word. <laughs> Oldest brother just drilled me in the head. So, 
thankfully we were not a family of bowlers. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to treat the body of believers around us like, well, a body. You don't, you know, if, if we all take care of each other, nobody's going to get left out, right? The early Christians in Corinth had a problem with leaving each other out. And they forgot that they were a body, and it was very seriously affecting one of the most important things that they did. I remember earlier I said we were going to go backwards through 1 Corinthians. So we started kind of in verse, chapter 13. We've walked our way through some of chapter 12. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Some of, your, some of your Bibles might have little headings or things like that. So Paul has just gotten done complimenting them on how they follow the instructions that he's giving them at the beginning of the chapter. Here in verse 17, he says, well, Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Okay, how would you like it? By the way, when this letter would be read... To the church, it would have been read to the entire house church, which probably could have met in a room about the size like this and have about as many like seats around. So envision like somewhere between at, at most maybe sixty people, and then like each little house church in Corinth. And how would you like for the person to say, or basically to hear your preacher say, "Y'all really screwed this one up," <laughs> and so here we go. <laughs> That's basically what's happening here. Verse 17. Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, what did Paul just, how did he just describe Christians, or how is he about to describe Christians in the next chapter? A body. Can your body function properly if there are divisions? Guys, Jerry's on fire today, and I'm loving it. <laughs> Tough to walk when you got a sprained ankle. Tough to walk? Yeah. Yeah. For when you come together, there are divisions in the church, and to some extent I believe it. And then Paul kind of riffs on this for a second. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it be clear uh, who among you is genuine. Okay. So Paul says, yeah, I mean, ultimately there are divisions because some of you aren't doing this for real, and others of you are. But then it gets back uh, to it. When you come together... It's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those, humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Okay. What is going on here? What's happening? They're not waiting for each other, they're not doing it in unity. They're not taking Lord's Supper as one. Yeah. They're not doing it for the right reasons. Basically, okay, some people like to say that Paul is not envisioning the actual Lord's Supper here. I, I don't think that that makes the most sense. I think, look at verse 20. When he says, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. 
I think what Paul is, Paul's drawing a contrast here. You have taken the Lord's Supper and have corrupted what should be the Lord's Supper and turned it into your own supper. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that is a pl- very good, plausible historical reconstruction. Paul doesn't give us all the details because that it would have been useless for them to know that. That would have been redundant. They already knew all that. But probably what's happening here is that the wealthier people come and they have plenty, plenty of food and plenty of wine. And then when they start, when they're ready to take the Lord's Supper, they take it. And they're not really concerned about waiting for the servants who are passing around the food or you know, a slave down the street who's a Christian, but you know, he's got to finish up what he does and might be here in a few minutes. They're not really worried about that. And so what they have done is taken this good thing and they've corrupted it. They've perverted it. Skip down to verse 27. Paul continues critiquing their abuses of the Lord's Supper. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who, drink, for all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. Okay. What is going on here? Trying to say, like, it's for, you know, it has a meaning. Don't just eat it to eat it. Don't just drink it to drink it. Yeah. You know, meditate on it. It's for a reason. Mm -hmm. And to only do it for that reason. Yeah. Um, let me ask this question. Based on everything that Paul has just said about Christians, or based on everything that Paul says about Christians in the next chapter, remember, what was that, what was that key term that Paul used to describe Christians in chapter 12? Body. A body. Okay. And what was Paul crit- criticizing them for in verses 17 through 22? Not being unified. They weren't. They weren't unified. They weren't waiting on each other. They were mistreating each other. And what is Paul warning them against in verses 27 through 29? Eating it just to eat it. Eating it just to eat it. Eating it in an unworthy manner. In verse 29, For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. What body is Paul talking about? In this verse, Jesus's body. Body of Christ, more uh, less of the physical body of Christ, and more as the church itself. Oh, more like the church itself. I don't think Paul's main argument here is 
When you take the bread and drink the cup of communion, you need to sit there and think about Jesus' body on the cross. Because if you don't, you eat it in an unworthy manner. Chances are, if you grew up in churches of Christ, that might be how you have always heard discerning the body. But given the context of Paul's critiques of how they are mistreating their fellow members in verses 17 through 22, and based on everything that Paul is going to say about the gathered body of believers in chapter 12, and then again in chapter 14, after showing them the more excellent way, which is love, that is, love for each other in chapter 13, I think the body here that Paul wants us to discern is not just Jesus on the cross, but also, sorry, it's not either or, I think it's both and, also the gathered body of believers around us. Have you insulted the body of Christ earlier in the week? Did you take vengeance on someone? Did you bear a grudge against someone? Did you neglect someone's needs? Maybe then you should discern the body, the gathered body of Christ around you. Maybe that's what Paul is talking about here. We've got just five minutes left, and I have like three quarters of a page left. Michael, yes, sir. Sorry, just adding to the end of this, because um, it says, if, uh, for he who drink, uh, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And then he goes into the, the next thing. He says, for this reason, then, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then he goes on to a couple things, and then you drop down to 33, and he says, so then. So then is a reference to the antecedent. What Correct. came before? On the basis of what I just said, now I'm going to tell you this. Yes. Yeah, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Weird. It's almost like he wants you to discern the body of believers around you. He goes, because if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. Yeah. And I find that very interesting, the use of the term judgment throughout all of these. I think that needs to be kind of unpacked in some way, not maybe necessarily here, but I think that that series of verses starting that whole set of passages from 23 all the way to the end of 34, there's some unpacking that needs to happen yeah. um, to really understand what, what Paul is telling the people. Yeah. And he plans on doing that at the end of verse 34. About the other things, I'll give instructions when I come. <laughs> oh, Paul, could you not have written that down for us? But the key here is when we eat the Lord's Supper, it is very much a community event, something, in, something we participate in with each other. Now let's go to the verses in verse 23 that I intentionally skipped because I wanted us to see the issue with the body first. Paul says, and this, 1 Corinthians was written maybe 10 to 15 or so years before the Gospel of Mark, which was probably the earliest Gospel written. And so this is, based on what we know and have, this is the earliest description of 
what the Lord's Supper, the practice of the Lord's Supper would look like here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Tom earlier mentioned the kind of Yoda speak on the communion tables. This do in remembrance of me. That follows the order of the Greek. The word this is in front of the verb do. Verse 25, likewise, uh, also with the cup. After uh, they ate, Jesus uh, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This phrase, the new covenant in Greek, another way to translate that is the New Testament, by the way. Kind of an interesting shade on what the New Testament means. It is the new covenant affected by Jesus' blood. Again, this do or do this as often as you drink it in my memory or in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until when he will come again. All right, why do we call this the Lord's Supper? Represents his body and his blood. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear here, right? Look at verse, um, verse 24. Jesus points to this bread and said, this is my body. Verse 25, he points to the cup and says, this is my cup. So let me ask you this question. Is Jesus with us when we take the Lord's Supper? Seeing some heads nod? Yeah? I think so. Are, are we gathered in his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Are we the body of Christ? Yes. yes. Is Jesus the head of the body? Yeah. Okay. Can the body be present while the head isn't? No, if gathered in good faith. Some of you might either know or remember being a teenager <laughs> when it feels like maybe their head isn't present. Yeah. So, how is Jesus with us when we take the Lord's Supper? What does that even mean? How is Jesus with us when we take the Lord's Supper? Do the bread and wine become literally the body and blood of Jesus? If you ask your Catholic friends, they would probably say yes. More of a spiritual. I think spiritually. I think it's also a testament to a broader scope of his conversation because he talks about a number of things around this context. Mm -hmm. Um, Using the Lord's Supper as the focal point. But he talks about that broader scope because we also, I mean, because he goes from here and then immediately jumps into the use of spiritual gifts where you started us yeah. in 12. Interesting. Because he talks about the spirit is the one who discerns which gift you get. Mm-hmm. So if you've received a gift, you've received that through the Holy Spirit. That's not a one-time thing. That is a you've been baptized into Christ. You have received the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So the spirit is within you. So it's not a one-time thing. 
it's not a just now thing. Yeah. It is an eternal thing. I want to roll with that idea. I'm aware of what time it is. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus connects his body and blood with the elements of the Lord's Supper. I don't think he does it in a physical way, but I think it's done in a spiritual way. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you know, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he says you know, something that sounds kind of weird and shocking like that. And, you know, some church traditions have really taken that to mean this is Jesus' literal body and blood. Jesus also said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And I don't think they're taking Jesus hyper-literally that way either. So I don't think we need to go the route that your Catholic friends might go. But when we're gathered together in Jesus' name, and we take the bread or the wine or grape juice, Jesus meets us by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is in each of us, as Michael just eloquently described, the Holy Spirit in each of us and the same Holy Spirit that is with Jesus in heaven. And so let me ask this last question. If it is a spiritual connection, if Jesus is spiritually with us instead of a physical connection where you're eating actually the body and actually the blood of Jesus, does that make it any less real? No, it doesn't. So next time you take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about how what you're doing there is it's a spiritual exercise. Jesus is actually there with us. We're gathered in his name, the body of Christ. He's there spiritually with us, with the Holy Spirit within us, connecting us to him and connecting each of us together. Last week we talked about how baptism is an initiation and an affirmation of our new identity in Christ. The Lord's Supper is very closely tied to that because it is a continual affirmation and a reminder of our new identity in Christ. Guys, about four minutes over time. I really appreciate y'all being here today. We will see y'all next 